Let's pray before we begin, shall we, tonight? Father, I come before you tonight, Lord, with the fear of God in my heart. And I thank you for the wonderful things that you're going to reveal and speak to us about tonight. Father, I pray that we should bow our hearts before you, that, Father, we should revere you and awe you, even tonight. Father, I do thank you for the comfort that are in the words that I'm going to say, speak and the great assurance and confidence that we can have. Father, I would pray for those who live upon this planet tonight who are afraid of, of what is going to happen, afraid of the future, afraid of the international situation, afraid of nuclear weapons and so on. And they don't know that there's a God who has complete mastery over all the affairs of men. Father, even through this tape, through this talk tonight, will you please, Lord, bring people to yourself? Father, will you remove the fears that have possessed so many that, Father, indeed, you should have a truly free people as your children? Father, just come and by your Spirit enable and anoint so that, indeed, the words may be life to all who hear them. In the name of Jesus, I ask it. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Well, we're making wonderful progress through this fifth series of studies. These are perhaps the hardest Bible studies it's ever been my lot to give, and they're all concerning the character of God. So far, may I remind you of what we've covered. In the first talk, we talked about, does God exist? And we gave an affirmative answer. Yes, on the evidence that we could see, he really does exist. Secondly, we asked the question, if God does exist, then who is he? And we gave an answer to that. We saw who he was and who he wasn't. And for the last three talks, I've done a detailed analysis of the Trinity, and we've shown how our God is one God, one in essence, but three in personality, what we call a triune God. Now, tonight, and for all the remaining Bible studies, we're going to be answering another question, and that is, so God exists and we know who he is, what is he like? And I've already warned you in the earlier talks that really it's a bit of a nonsense of a question because God being God, he isn't like anything that we know. We only know things that are in the creation, but God is above the creation. But fortunately for us, God has revealed himself sufficiently for us to gain some idea of what his character is like. And when we read through the Bible, soon various attributes start springing out at us. An attribute, by the way, is simply a definition of part of God's character. It's a quality that he has. And so, what I'm going to do tonight and every other talk of this series, we're going to be having a look at the attributes of God. Now, at the very beginning of this course, someone came up to me and said, Roger, will you be dealing with all the characteristics of God in this course? And I had to say, no, I'm afraid I won't be. And he looked so crestfallen. And I simply said, well, you see, God, being infinite, has an infinite character. And that means in his infinite character, there are an infinite number of attributes. Now, I may have done a lot of tapes, but infinity is still some way off. It just seems like infinity, right? And in fact, it's quite impossible to do that. In fact, we mortals don't know every attribute of God. Do you know that we know some attributes that the angels don't know? And the angels have to look at us to learn something about God. They long to look into these things. 
The angels know other attributes that we don't know, and sometimes it's only by listening to what they're saying that we learn of these attributes, but I believe there are attributes that neither the angels nor we know anything about, for God and God alone knows. There are an infinite number of attributes. So what I've done, I have chosen ten that I'm going to talk about. And these ten, I think, are the most obvious as far as the Bible is concerned. And may I say, as we go through these attributes in the next few months, you'll find that as you know something more of God, it will produce more peace in your life and much more maturity in your life. Because now, instead of talking to the unknown God, you're talking to a God who is open to be known by you. Now, let's have a list of these attributes that I'm actually going to go through. All right, I've actually uh, written them up on the machine here. Oh, well, I'll read them out. <laughs> These are the ones that we're actually going to be going through. First of all, I'm going to deal with the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. And that is actually tonight's talk. That is the first attribute. The second attribute is absolute righteousness. The third attribute is absolute justice. The fourth is omniscience, that is, he is all-knowing. The fifth is omnipotence, he is all-powerful. The sixth is omnipresence, that is, he is everywhere at the same time. Wonderful attribute, that is. Seven, the attribute of eternality, that he always has been and there's never been a time when he wasn't. Number eight, the attribute of love, that God is love. Number nine, the attribute of immutability. And that simply means that God never changes. He's always the same. And last of all, number ten, I'm going to deal with the attribute of veracity, which means truth, that God is faithful and he is true. Now, those of you on tape, you can stop the tape and you can write them out. The rest of you, I'll leave that up on the overhead projector for you to actually copy out. Now, men have something of some of these attributes. Most men have a little bit of sovereignty. That is our free will. We can do to some extent what we decide to do, but God has absolute sovereignty. Also, we have a little bit of righteousness, but God has absolute righteousness. We've got a little bit of justice. God has absolute justice. No one here is omniscient, even though you may think that you're omniscient. No one here is omnipotent, though you may flex your muscles. No one here is omnipresent, although some of us try to be through the telephone. Right? None of us is eternal. Some of us have a little bit of love, but God is the recipient, sorry, is the uh, source of uh, the abundance of love. None of us, unfortunately, is immutable. We do change. God alone is immutable. And none of us is total truth. God and God alone is total truth. Now, absolute righteousness and absolute justice I'm going to link together because they come under holiness. Now, these are the attributes of the Godhead that I'm covering, and because we've studied the Trinity, I don't have to say, do I, that in fact the Father has all of these attributes, the Son has got all of these attributes, and the Holy Spirit has all of these attributes. And notice, please, none of these attributes is used on its own. They're all used in conjunction with every other one. For example, we're talking about sovereignty tonight. Sovereignty by itself could be quite frightening. 
But because our God is also a God of love and a God of holiness, it's not a bit frightening. You see? So you've got to bear in mind that they must all come together. And so tonight, we move straight on to the attribute of sovereignty. And I have to say immediately that many, many people who talk about the character of God never deal with the attribute of sovereignty because it is too difficult. But I believe that it, there's no reason why it should be considered difficult. The word sovereign simply means the chief, the highest, or the supremest, the supreme one. And if you're talking about someone and you say they are sovereign, what you are saying is that they are the highest, they have the maximum authority. The, su the sovereign of a particular area is the highest in that particular area. For example, our own queen is not only called Queen Elizabeth II, she's also called our sovereign lady. She is the sovereign of our land. And what, when you say that she's the sovereign, what you mean is that there is none higher than she is. I heard a man speaking on the radio who for the last 27 years has been fighting about the land that he owns. And there was a time when it was a lovely piece of land. Since that time, he's had pylons put across it, the gas ball's been across it, oil, put, oil pipelines have been put, put across it, gas pipes have been put across it, now the M3's been put across it. And he's 80 now, and after 27 years of struggle, he said on the radio, I am now going to appeal to the Queen, he said. And he realized, as he said it, that if the Queen turns him down, there's no one else he can go to. He's now been to the highest authority. She is the sovereign as far as this nation is concerned. When the Victorians called their currency the sovereign, they meant there's no currency like it. And in the Victorian era, of course, the British pound was the most stable currency in the world. The sovereign. Every other currency was judged by the British pound. That's what it actually means. When Mrs. Thatcher talks about the sovereignty of the Falkland Isles, what she means is, who is going to have the last word over the Falkland Islands? And she says it's not negotiable. In other words, Britain's going to have the last say over those islands. And when she says it, by the way, she's acting like a sovereign, you know? But Argentina says, no, we should be the ones who have sovereignty over those islands. We should be the top authority. And so the word sovereign means the highest that there is. But I have to tell you this, the Queen may be sovereign over Britain, but there's only one true sovereign person in the universe, and that is our God. And that is why we've got to look at this attribute that we call sovereignty. And actually, compared to God's sovereignty, no one else has any sovereignty at all. Let's find that in the Bible, shall we? We'll be turning to quite a lot of references tonight. But let's go to the book of 1 Timothy. And see a simple statement of it. And there's a phrase used here which we're all familiar with, and yet most of us have never realized that it is actually a title of sovereignty. Now here it's talking about God the Father. And in verse 15, this is what it says of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, talking about the appearing of the Lord Jesus which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate. Notice that. He's the only potentate. Because once you've seen God's power, no one else has any power in comparison. Now that's the statement of sovereignty. And then to qualify it, he says, the king of kings and the lord of lords. A king is a sovereign. A lord is a sovereign. 
But our God is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's sovereign of all the sovereigns. He is absolute sovereignty. In the Old Testament, it's expressed in a slightly different way, but again using a very familiar phrase that we all know. If you go to Isaiah 44, Isaiah 44, this is a statement of his sovereignty in verse 6. Isaiah 44 and verse 6, it says here, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. That's a statement of sovereignty. First and last, this is the Father talking. I'm the first, I'm the last, there's no one before me, there's no one after me. I totally encompass everything that is to be uh, in the universe, right? I'm the first, I'm the last, and besides me, there is no God. That's the statement of fact. So there is a statement of the sovereignty of God. Not only is he sovereign, he is actually the only truly unlimited sovereign and the only truly free sovereign. Now, what do I mean by saying he is the only unlimited sovereign and the only free sovereign? Let's take unlimited first of all. Our queen is queen only of a very limited area. She is queen of Great Britain, right, and, of course, Northern Ireland, right? She's queen of those. She's also queen of Canada, of New Zealand, of Australia, and one or two other islands. So she's got a fairly extensive area, but even so, it's fairly limited, there are people in this world, believe it or not, who've never heard of our queen. Isn't that amazing? She has no authority over them. The queen of Denmark has far less power than our queen has got. The queen of Norway, the, uh, the, the king of Norway, the king of Sweden, similarly, are more limited than our queen. But God is the one who dwarf, sorry, who, who yes, makes dwarfs of those other kings. For when you see his sovereignty, it is so extensive in area that in fact everyone else seems like a, a sort of pinprick in comparison to God. Because God as the creator has the whole of the creative realm in his dominion, and he's sovereign over it all. Well, I'm going to check all this with reference from the Bible. Let's see two verses on that. If we go to Psalm 24, which you all know I hope very well, I use it often in weddings in the fellowship. Psalm 24... And verse 1, this is a statement which covers the earth anyway. It says here, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. So his dominion consists of the world and all that dwell therein, but that's not all that it consists of. And that's why, incidentally, what the second scripture I want to turn to in 1 Chronicles 29, I think is a better one. In 1 Chronicles 29... The end of verse 10 to verse 13. And here is David praising the Lord, not thinking about himself, but thinking about his God. And this is what he says, halfway through verse 10. Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father, for ever and ever. Then verse 11. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. And I think he almost runs out of vocabulary at that point. You know what he's trying to describe? Sovereignty. 
That's what he's trying to describe. For thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all, and in thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Now therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. And there he is having a wonderful praise meeting, but he's preoccupied with the sovereignty of God. So God's sovereignty is unlimited, covers everything in heaven and in earth. Where is anywhere in heaven and earth where God isn't? He's everywhere. And his sovereignty, his power, his reign is over everything in heaven and in earth. So he's unlimited. What do we mean when we say that actually God is the only free sovereign? Well, you see, all sovereigns have a will. They decide they want something and they want to have it now. Now, the minute a sovereign decides that, they can't have everything they want. You know the Queen of Hearts. She walked around saying, off with his head, off with his head. I'd love sometimes to be able to do that, but I can't. Off with their heads. If our queen did it, you know what would happen? Um, her advisors would say, well, excuse me, ma'am, but I'm afraid we, we can't quite do that. You know, there'd be such a scandal, right? It really would. The sun says, off with his head, and so on. We couldn't possibly do it. And uh, she would have to say, well, I want it. Well, I'm sorry, ma'am, we can't do it. Terribly sorry about that. So you see, her will is not unlimited. For example, if the Queen actually wrote a letter to the culture minister of Greece, that wonderful woman, Melina Mercuri, remember her? And said, look, we've got the most wonderful Elgin marbles, we just need a building to put them on. Could you please send us the Parthenon over so that we could have the Elgin marbles back in their original possession? I don't, well, I can imagine the answer that she'd get. I don't think that her sovereignty would extend that far. If the Queen wants to go to Manchester in good weather, and she rings up the Met Office and said, uh, my wishes are for tomorrow, fine weather in Manchester, the poor people would uh, look at one another and they'd say, Mum, I, I, I'm terribly sorry, we, we can't actually decide what the weather's going to be like in Manchester tomorrow, and it'd probably be raining, I'm sorry about that. Do You see, her sovereignty is limited, but that's not true of our God. And may I say, if we don't grasp anything else tonight, we've got to grasp this, that God's will is totally free. He will do as he wants to do, and no one can question him, and no one can stop him. God will do what he wants to do. And that is the definition of sovereignty. God's ability to do as he pleases. Now, this is so vital for us as Christians to get on board that I want to show you four scriptures that say it, and they're quite devastating scriptures as well. His freedom is absolute freedom, okay, even though sometimes we don't like it. So let's go to the Psalms first of all. In Psalm 135, in Psalm 135, notice the words very carefully in verse 6. Psalm 135, verse 6, Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he, in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all deep places. Whatsoever he wanted to do, he did it. Now the geologists come along with uniformitarianism. And that is that everything, there are certain processes that just go on and on and on and on and on. But this is, no, no, no. If God wanted to do it, he did it, whatever it was. So that's an expression of his total sovereignty. 
Another one is Psalm 115. Psalm 115 and verse 3. No restrictions on God in any of these verses. Verse 3, but our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. So God decides he wants to do it, he does it. That's all you can say. Why, God, have you done this? Well, I just did it. That's enough. You see? Two more. Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46. Verse 9 and verse 10. And he says here, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Whatever I want to do, I'm going to do it. And last of all, in the book of Daniel and chapter 4, Daniel chapter 4, Daniel 4, Verse 35, and this is the tract that Nebuchadnezzar wrote when he was converted, and he sent it all round his kingdom, telling of his conversion. And in verse 35, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? No one can stop him and no one can question him because he as sovereign has the perfect right to do as he pleases. Now, that's what it says. Now this does not mean actually that he is authoritarian because we must remember he also acts in love at the same time and acts in holiness and that puts the balance. The two names Adonai, A-D-O-N-A-I, Adonai and the word Lord both express his sovereignty. When you say Jesus is Lord, what you mean is he can do unto me as he pleases. Now, there aren't many people who can honestly, in truth, say Jesus is Lord. What most of us say is Jesus is Lord when it suits us. But at times when it doesn't suit us, he's not Lord. That is not bowing the knee to his sovereignty. His sovereignty says that when he desires to do something, he will do it. Now, I have to say this, most Christians don't like God being sovereign. We actually like God to do that which we think is right and to do things that uh, come up trumps as far as our own morality is concerned. And generally, when God comes alongside us and does that which we consider good, then we're full of praise to him. The minute he does something that we don't like, it's funny, isn't it, how we react. And immediately we say, God, what are you doing? That is the type of thing that we say. What are you doing, God? Oh, God, I don't think that's fair. You, I don't think that's right. Are you sure this is exactly what you want, want to do? And so we start questioning, it, questioning uh, his right to be sovereign. And I know that within us all there is a resistance to the absolute sovereignty of God. And yet I believe that if we are going to move on as Christians, we've got to come to the place where truly his sovereignty is something that is real in our existence. I've got a quotation from Spurgeon. I've put it in my Bible at this point because he talks about this better than any other person that I know. You know the prince of preachers, don't you? Look what he says about the reaction to sovereignty. He says this, There is no doctrine more hated by worldlings, and he doesn't only mean 
non-Christians there, he means worldly Christians as well. There is no doctrine more hated by worldlings, no truth which they have made such a football as the great stupendous but yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. Men will allow God to be everywhere but on his throne. Let me just stop there. Do you know it's true? It's true of me. It's true of most of the Christians I know. We'll allow God to be certain things in our lives, won't we? He can be our healer anytime he likes. He can be our healer. He can be the one who fights for us anytime he likes. We'll bow the knee to it. We'll enjoy it. We'll embrace him as such. Oh, yes. He will be our saviour, our redeemer. Oh, anytime, Lord. We worship you as our redeemer. Yes, true. You can be our counsellor. You can be our comforter. You can be our shepherd. But the minute he wants to be the sovereign Lord, we don't want it. We actually want to question him at that point. Excuse me, hold on, God. What actually are you doing at this point? And we find it, it, it sets us sort of jangling a bit inside, you know. We don't like it. And God suddenly comes along and he does something without consulting us. And we start, you didn't tell me you were going to do that. I don't think it's right necessarily. And that's the reaction that we have. Now, at that point, you see, we may proclaim him as, as everything else, but we're not proclaiming him as Lord. His sovereignty isn't absolute at that point. Now, that's why Spurgeon continues like this. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures gnash their teeth. We don't want him to be absolute ruler. We want to be an oligarchy with him. You know what an oligarchy is? Several people ruling. And so he comes along and says, well, what do you think I ought to do here? Well, I, if I were you, I would do such and such. Oh, well, that's what I'll do then. That's what we want. But when he says, no, sir, you're going to do this, okay? You're going to do that. I order you. Who do you think you are? To and that's our immediate reaction. It's wrong. They gnash their teeth. When we proclaim and enthrone God and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well without consulting them in the matter, then it is that we are hissed at and execrated, and then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us, for God on the throne is not the God that they love. Isn't it true? And I believe that until God has removed that resistance to his absolute will, we are going to find our God strangely limited in our midst and in our personal lives. If God is sovereign, it means that he can do as he pleases, and if we love him, we rejoice when he does it, even though for us it may prove difficult, even though for us it doesn't seem right at that particular moment. Now, the angels know this better than we know. It's true. We sometimes act as if God was created for our good pleasure. Have you met Christians like that? Oh, this doctrine of prosperity. Isn't it wonderful? You get a Christian, then you're rich. Isn't that what? I've always wanted to be rich. Now I've become a Christian, and God's there. And then they want, uh, you know, silver dinner service. So they ask God, give us a silver dinner service. And that's all right. Well, some of us ask for that. I wouldn't, incidentally. A friend of mine actually has one. They're so afraid it's going to be stolen, they lock it up in the loft. <laughs> And, and that's it. It's ridiculous. But you see, many people, when they don't become rich, they want to know what God's up to. And instead of we being creatures for his pleasure, he's become a person for our pleasure. That is not the talk of sovereignty. It's not. 
God is the one who is sovereign. He does with us as he pleases, because he's our sovereign Lord. Now, the angels know it. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 4, and let's have a look at the, the angels singing in heaven. In Revelation chapter 4, and those of you with modern translations, you're going to miss a lot at this point, because the thundering diction of the King James Version puts it beautifully. And in Revelation chapter 4, and verse 11, look what it says. Thou art worthy, O Lord, say the angels, to receive glory and honour and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Now do you see, that's a statement of truth. We are here for his pleasure, he is not there for our pleasure. Of course he wants to bless us, of course he does. But in the final analysis, the more important question is this, do I bless him? Not a question of whether he blesses me, but the question is, do I bless him? And that must be the question uppermost as far as we are concerned. I must say this, I need a revelation, a deeper revelation of this, that he must be able to do with me as he pleases, even though it may oppose my doctrine, even though it may oppose your doctrine, my beloved brothers and sisters. But if he is to be sovereign in my life, he's got to have the absolute right of sovereignty. He's either sovereign or is no sovereign at all. Either I'm sovereign or he is, and the choice has to be made. And this says we are and were created for his good pleasure. So sometimes we come to a situation and we ask God, God, is it right? God, is it fair? Our answer has got to be this. From what I know of God, it's right because he did it. The question is, well, did God do it? Yes, he did. Well, if he did it, it must be right. Even though I can't understand it, it must be. Is it fair? It must be fair because he did it. Is it fair that God chose Israel as his own special people? Is it fair when the Welsh were on the earth at the same time? Is that fair? Come on, no one would choose the Jews when the Welsh are about. Of course it's fair, of course it's right, because God happened to do it. And can't he do with his own as he pleases? The answer is yes, he can. And this is why in the Bible you will find there is never, never ever any compromise about what God can do and what he can't do. And some statements in the Bible I find hard to swallow as you do because we're mortal. Very difficult. There are certain statements that we have to scratch our heads and say, Lord, there has to be a theological answer to this, and there isn't one. God simply has done it because he chooses to do it. Let me show you two slightly difficult passages. One's in the prayer of Hannah. Do you know these Old Testament saints, they've really understood about the sovereignty of God. Can we turn to 1 Samuel and chapter 2? 1 Samuel, chapter 2, verse 6, and I'll, and I'll just read a little bit. Now, I'm sorry, this is going to tread on a few of your corns. I'm terribly sorry about that, but it's God that's treading on them, not me. Now, verse 6, praise God. If you've got corns, ask him to heal them, then he can't tread on them. Verse 6, the Lord killeth and maketh alive. That's difficult for some people. You mean he actually kills people? Yes, he actually does kill people. And he makes them alive. Yes, he, there's also the God of resurrection. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor. Oh, hold on a minute. I've been reading some books from America. This doesn't agree. 
He maketh poor? No, no, it's the devil that makes poor, isn't it? No, no, no. Hold on a minute. He maketh poor. That's what it says. Now, I believe, of course, that God will supply all your needs in Christ Jesus. This is talking about the inhabitants of the earth. Now, I'm sorry, the people in the social gospel, they say, oh, no, 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 we've got to work so that everyone is rich. Listen, no one's going to be rich unless God makes them rich. Let me tell you that. And sometimes nations are judged by God, and one of the things that happens is they become poor. Britain has been judged. Do you know that? The industrial strife we've been through for the last 20 years, but now has stopped in Great Britain, that's a judgment of God. Why? Because we've abandoned the position that our fathers had in the Victorian era. That's what it's all about. He maketh poor, you know, but he also maketh rich. He bringeth low, and he lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust, and I love the way it now concentrates on the positive. Lovely. Right? And he lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes, to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. I own everything that there is. I'll do with it as I please. Got it? That's sovereignty. Well, perhaps that for us isn't so difficult. The next one really is. Now turn to Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16 you understand, or beginning to understand now, why some ministers never touch the subject of sovereignty, right? It really is uncompromising. Proverbs 16, verse 4, look at this. The Lord hath made all things for himself, we all agree. Yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. The Lord has made the wicked for the day of evil. He's made them for the lake of fire. Oh dear, no, it doesn't, it, hold on, it doesn't fit with our scripture. And then you come to God and you start questioning him about it. And what's God's answer to you? God's answer is, how dare you talk to me like that? That's what he says. I'll show you an Old Testament passage and a New Testament passage that say that, how dare you talk like that, even though many of us have spent many of our early Christian years talking to God in this type of way. Let's have a look at uh, Isaiah, another passage in Isaiah. Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, verse 9. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. The word striveth means you pick an argument with him. God, excuse me, I've got to ask you about the situation. What do you think you're doing? Woe unto him that talks to God in that type of manner. And then it says, let the pots herd... Strive with the pots herds of the earth. Now what's that mean? It says, let the old clay pots argue with the old clay pots. That's what it says. Your, your clay down there, if you're going to argue with anyone, argue with another bit of clay. But then it says, notice this, shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, that's the potter, what makest thou, or thy work, he hath no hands. You're criticizing this work that God has actually done. He says, if you're going to pick an argument with anyone, keep it on the human level, but don't you try and pick an argument with me. Woe unto him that picks an argument with me, says the Lord. And you're a little pot. How dare you say, excuse me, God, I don't think you've made me right. Right? I ought to have a handle on this side. You can't say that. God simply says, I'm the pot around here, and you are exactly what I want to make you. Right? I like bulls that have three legs sometimes. What? God can do as he pleases with his clay. Yes, he can. Now, I used to do sculpture, you see, for just one year before I was chucked out. And um, <laughs> I used to do it. And I used to make the most grotesque 
fantasies of my imagination. Really, it was amazing. We had the most liberal art master that you could ever imagine, and I once carved a beautiful thing, like an archway which had elephantitis on one side. And I covered it up with a cloth, and he was coming round to look at it, you know. And I, he, his name was Mr. Garrett. And he said, well, come on, Price, show me your, your piece of work. And I said, well, I don't really want to, Mr. Garrett. He said, Price, he said, you can get beauty from anything. <laughs> so I thought, well, I will. And I took the cloth off, and he gazed at it, and then he said, well, almost anything. <laughs> that's what he said. Now, that's all right, the art master talking to me like that. But if the clay turns around and says, you must be crazy making me like this. That would have been something else. I'd have smashed it to bits instantaneously. You see? I actually was making up some plaster of Paris just a few weeks later, and the wretched thing wouldn't set, so I poured it down the sink, where it, <laughs> where it set instantly, may I say, and they had to replace 10 feet of piping or whatever it was. And that was the end of my artistic career. Just uh, filling you in on the details. That's why you'll never find me drawing a thing, right? But here, that's what it's saying. How dare the pot come along and actually question the potter about this? Look, if you're in the revelation of sovereignty, you don't talk to God like that. That's what this is saying. Now, that's not just Old Testament. Now go through to New Testament. And in the book of Romans, can you believe it? This is the answer Paul gives. You'd have thought Paul was an intellectual who could answer every problem that there was in the Bible. Oh, dear. Romans chapter 8, sorry, that's not right. Uh, Romans chapter 9, that's right, verse 17. And verse 17 speaks of Pharaoh. Do you remember Pharaoh whose heart God hardened to get the children of Israel out of Egypt? For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. You say, well, that's not fair. You mean he has mercy on some people, and he doesn't have mercy on others? That's not fair. And Paul, who reads the thoughts that they would have when they read this letter, he says, ah, verse 19, Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? If God has determined this, why can he blame us for anything? Because surely his will is going to be done anyway. And then Paul's answer, verse 20, Nay, but O man, who art thou that thou repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter, power over the clay of the same lump, to make one vessel unto honour and another unto dishonour? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory? And in other words, he says, I won't even listen to such a question. If God did it, it has to be right, because he's God and he's sovereign. Have you ever heard the, have been asked the question? I'm asked it all the time. Roger, why did God make the devil, knowing that the devil would fall, knowing that as a result all of this trouble would come? I mean, surely that was stupid of God. And they expect me to say, oh, well, you see, now the answer is, 
and to have the perfect answer? The answer is, I don't know, but all I know is that if God did it, it has to be right, and that one day I'm going to understand it. And the only thing God will say is, you hold your tongue. Who do you think you are to ask such a, a question of God? He knows what he's doing, thank you very much. Very hard, isn't it? But at this point of sovereignty, it is the bowed knee that is the only answer to these things. And sometimes things may happen in your life and you say, God, why have they happened? And God won't tell you immediately, although normally in our lives we'll understand just a little further along the line exactly what has happened. I long to see Christians who will have the awe and the fear of God operating in their lives so that when things happen they will say, well, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord, instead of saying, Lord, why this or why that? That type of questioning, you know, shows that we don't have enough revelation of sovereignty. It doesn't matter if you do that. Just ask God to give you a greater revelation of his sovereignty. Nevertheless, we do come to a sticky problem here, and it's the problem mentioned um, in verse 19. And that is, when we have the sovereignty of God, in other words, he will do as he pleases, how does our free will fit into that? Because if God is going to do what he wants... How, why have I got free will? Because surely I can't resist his will. And so you'll always find that whenever sovereignty is dealt with, you always sooner or later hit this thorny problem of, well, if God is going to have his way anyway, how does my free will come and affect it? Because apparently it doesn't affect it. And so what I want to do for the remainder of the time today is have a look at this problem of the sovereignty of God and my personal free will. Because you know, don't you, that when Adam was put on this earth, God allowed him to have free will. God decided that he'd be here on a conditional basis. You see, God decided that he would be able to choose for good or for evil. That was God's own sovereign choice. And may I say, the right to free will is your absolute right. That is why you will find, if people want to come and join us as a fellowship, we welcome them. If they don't want to come or if they want to leave, we welcome their decision. Do you see? But what they will do what they please because we respect the personal liberty of the individuals concerned. Now that's what the Bible demands of us. So how do we get a balance between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man? Well, before I, we actually have a look at the will of God, and I think I can help you through this problem, as I was praying about this, the Lord showed me a wonderful picture, but don't take this picture too far. It, it is a limited picture. And that is of this. I saw the QE2, the Queen Elizabeth II, which is a ship, of course, docked in uh, Southampton, and her course was being plotted for New York. You know, don't you, that it's not only um, aeroplanes that fly on autopilot. Did you know that? Do you know ships also run on autopilot? In fact, I've been on the bridge of uh, several of the ships I've sailed on, and at one time there was no one there, you know? And the chap had just popped outside. He dashed straight back. But he wasn't doing anything. He was just walking up and down. The ship was actually steering itself. And it had all been put in. It was pre-planned. So on the QE2, they feed in the relevant information. And the QE2 is definitely going to enter New York Harbor three days hence, or whatever it is. Now, that is the sovereignty, as it were, of God. That's a picture of it. It's all determined where the ship will end up. But the thousand people on board have complete free will. They can sleep, they can read, they can swim, they can eat, they can find a table. They can even walk in the opposite direction to New York, but they're all going to end up in New York. 
And you see, immediately you begin to see something of the balance. But to develop it in a bit more detail, what I've done is drawn three concentric circles on the overhead projector here. The largest circle on the outside I've called the overruling will of God. This is what God has decreed, and this is definitely what is going to come to pass. Now, that's the outside circle. I, I think we'll define that now, right? There are certain things that God has laid down before he created anything that would definitely come to pass. And no matter what happens on the face of this earth, that is definitely going to come to pass. That's why it's the largest circle that I've actually drawn there. One thing he's decreed already is the second advent of Jesus Christ. It was decreed from eternity past, and the date is known by the Father. Nothing at all will disturb that. On that very day, on that very minute, Jesus will return. Nothing you can do will kick it one way or t'other. God has already preset it. And Jesus said, the Father knows that date. You see? So that's predetermined. Do you know that the death of Jesus was one of the things predetermined by God? It isn't something that he invented when Adam fell and he thought, oh, Adam's fallen, oh, heavens, what are we going to do now? It's not that. It says that Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That was pre-planned right, right the way back there. There's a lovely statement of that fact, incidentally, in the wonderful prayer prayed by the disciples when the church was being persecuted in Acts chapter 4. Let's just have a look at that. In Acts chapter 4... Talking about the death of Jesus, this is what it says in verse 26. Acts 4, verse 26. The kings of the earth stood up, they pray, they're reminding God of what happened. The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. And who decided that they gathered together? Well, they did. Pontius Pilate took the decision that he would go ahead with what the Jews wanted. Herod wanted Jesus dead. The Jews wanted him dead. The Gentiles wanted him dead. They decided. But notice the next verse. Verse 28. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Amazing. The death of Jesus was predetermined by the Lord, and that's the overruling will of God. Jesus was going to be betrayed, and he was going to be put to death, because that was God's plan. Herod decided he would be the character who'd do it. Pontius Pilate decided he'd be the character that did it. But even though they thought they were sovereign in this, it was God's almighty overruling plan that was behind it all. So that's the outer circle. The next circle, just a little way inside, is what I call God's permissive will. Now here are things that God doesn't necessarily approve of, and in many cases things that he hates, but he doesn't stop them. He permits them to go ahead. For example, the Bible is quite clear that God wants a believer to marry a believer. But sometimes in church, never at a service I'm doing, incidentally, you find that a believer has decided to rebel against God and to marry an unbeliever. Now, if I was God, just as the blushing bride came up the aisle, just as they were about to take their vows, there'd be a spark of lightning, a clap of thunder, rather similar to the one that we had last time, 
and they would both drop dead on the spot. I wouldn't put up with it. I wouldn't permit it. But God does. And often the, the woman that has sauntered up often saunters out again with this man, you know, leaning on this man's arm. Now, God doesn't approve of that, but he permits it. Similarly, some Christians decide that they are going to live a sinful life. God does not approve of it, but he permits it for a season. But of course, after a season of grace, and sometimes that's quite a long season of grace, God then starts judging them and starts disciplining them. Nevertheless, he has permitted them to do it. And some things that happen may not be in God's perfect will, but they are nevertheless permitted by them, by him. If, he, if they weren't permitted by him, by the way, they wouldn't happen. You see? So that's God's permissive will. And then the smallest circle inside is what I call God's declared will, or if you like to call it such, God's perfect will. And these are the things that God declares to us that he wants to happen as far as he is concerned. These uh, things in number three, that is God's declared will, often don't happen. i give you an example. God desires that all men everywhere may come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants all men saved. Are all men going to be saved? No, they're not. Nevertheless, God declares that that's his perfect will. He wants all Christians to be sanctified. That is the will of God, even your sanctification, as Thessalonians says. Does that mean all Christians are going to live holy lives? Unfortunately, it does not. Do you see? But they're the three wills. Now, to understand it, let's start with the smallest one. Here is what I've already said God declares to be his perfect will. And if you are to be perfectly blessed and in the perfect plan of God, then, in fact, that is the circle that you will be in. Unfortunately, the majority of people don't obey what God says, and so they are part of the bigger circle, which is God's permissive will. In other words, God permits them to get away with it for a season. But even though they choose to do that which God doesn't want, there's still a bigger circle, which is God's overruling will, which means that God's going to have his way no matter what they choose to do. Now, can you see these three wills as they come out? A few examples, I think, will help. Israel is an example. God declared that Israel would be his people and would come into all the covenant blessings that he promised Abraham unconditionally. He says, they're going to come into it. I swear by myself that they will come into it. Then he said to them, Israel, if you want to be blessed, do this, 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 and this. And Israel said, sorry, God, we're not going to do it. We're going to do what we want to do, you see? And so they've rebelled against God. They uh, didn't bother to do his laws. They didn't bother to listen to his, his uh, word. And they went their own way and were disciplined by him. When Jesus came as their king, they didn't receive him. They put him to death. You see, that's, but God allowed it. God permitted them to actually do that. For 2,000 years now, they've been under God's judgment. And yet still, the prophecies about them are that the day is coming, and fairly soon now, when they will come into all the blessings that God has promised them anyway. So that's the overruling will of God. Do you see? The overruling will of God is rather like the script of a play. Right? This is the way that the play is going to develop, whether you like it or not. That's the way the play is actually going. Okay? Another example I think we could give is of Judas. And this teaches us something else. You remember Judas was the one who betrayed Jesus. I think it would be worth our while looking at uh, Matthew chapter 26 at this point. Matthew 26, <clears throat> where we see the Last Supper. And in verse 20, 
This is what it says. Matthew 26, verse 20. Now when the evening was come, he sat down with the twelve. And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me, says Jesus. And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. Now verse 24. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him. The overruling will of God will come to pass in my life, is what he says. But woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. There it is. Now here is Judas. Judas is going to betray the Lord Jesus himself. And yet, isn't it interesting, at the same supper, Jesus gives the last gospel appeal to this man. This man, Judas, is an unbeliever. And do you remember what Jesus did? He took the bread, he took a bit of bread off, he dipped it in the sauce, they always had a sauce, you know, and the host always did that to begin any evening meal. He took a piece of bread, dipped it in the sauce, and he gave it to the most honoured and most loved person in the room. And do you remember in John chapter 13, it actually says that Jesus broke the bread, he dipped it, and he handed the sop to Judas. And what he was saying is, Judas, will you at this last moment believe in me? It's a gospel appeal, because God desires that all men, including Judas Iscariot, should be saved. And at that moment, Judas says no in his heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. At that moment, he decides that he prefers the money, thank you very much, that he's been offered. He's going to be the one now who betrays the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the overruling will of God is the, 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 uh, the script of a play, but do you see, it is the actors themselves who, through their own character, decide which part they are going to play in that overall script. And here Judas decides. You might say to me, ah, oh, but what would have happened if Judas had actually been born again at that point? Say he'd been converted. What would have happened? I don't know what would have happened. All I know is that the overruling will of God would have still been done. I don't know what the answer is to that. But I know the overruling will of God would have been done. Nevertheless, here in grace, God appeals to G Judas Iscariot for his salvation. Do you see the type of uh, uh, tension there is here in our understanding between the sovereignty of God and yet this free will coming in? The good news for us is this, that your salvation, my dear brothers and sisters, is unconditional, just like Israel's calling. And the great news for us all is we're all going to make it. Hallelujah. Now, it doesn't matter what you do along the way, except, of course, Father is the Father who is going to discipline along the way if we don't do according to his will. Nevertheless, we're all going to make it. Whether you've actually had a good life or a bad life up to this point, you're still going to make it. Let's have a few scriptures on that. If you go to Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, and this presents us with a wonderful piece. Philippians 1 verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Until the day of Jesus Christ. Good news, isn't it? He began the work in me. I couldn't make myself born again, but he made me regenerate. 
And he that began that work, he's going to bring it to completion. Wonderful. And what is the completed work? I'll tell you what it is, that we will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? So, let's go to Romans chapter 8, verse 29, and there's a statement of the pre-planned destination for every Christian. In Romans eight twenty-nine, look what it says. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And I'd say to you all, if you're truly born again here, the day is coming when you will look just like Jesus looks. You will be conformed to his image. That is the overruling will of God for your life. And he that began it will make sure that it goes through to completion. Good news. In fact, actually, Romans 8, 28 is a statement of the overruling will of God. Isn't it? Couldn't have a better one than that. This is how secure you can be in your God. God knows everything that's going to happen to you. And this is what he says about all those things that are going to happen to you. He says this, And we know that all things work together for the good, to those who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. In other words, whatever happens to you, whether it's good or bad, in the long run it can only further God's plan. It can't actually hinder it. You see, this is what the devil finds so frustrating about God. He can't stand it. He has some marvelous scheme to thwart God's plan. He throws it at a Christian. For a few days or a few weeks or a few months, it seems to take hold. Then all of a sudden, he sees it turn into the biggest disaster in which he loses every battle. He can't stand it. It's a situation where you toss a coin and the devil knows if it's heads, God wins. If it's tails, I lose. That's the situation that he's in. He can't do anything. He plots all these wonderful schemes and it always ends up with God more glorious than he was before. His greatest scheme was to, king, to kill the king of glory, Jesus Christ. Oh, this was a wonderful scheme. And Judas himself, the evil one, put it into the heart of Judas. You see, what he would do. Oh, well, this is it. Now we'll murder the king of glory, says the devil. But the Bible says, if he'd known what he was doing, he'd have never done it. But he didn't know what he was doing. God knew what he was doing. That's wonderful news. And what happened? For a little while, all the disciples thought, this is the biggest defeat ever. You see? And what was Jesus doing? He's proclaiming the victory down to the demons, down in that worm that is called Tartarus down below, proclaiming his victory. And finally, it ended up with the devil totally annihilated and defeated. So much so, that he's never been able to get the victory since. Oh, the tragedy of it. Do you see the overruling will of God? And whatever the devil plans, do you know, all things work to the good, to those who are the called, that's you, according to his purpose. Those that love God, who are the called, according to his purpose. His purposes will come to pass. Why? Because he's sovereign. That's why. This wonderful truth of the sovereignty of God. I think there is no more comforting... Um, doctrine than this. There is no more confident doctrine than this. That God will do as he's planned, and listen to this, he is secretly planning for you in love. Isn't that good news? So that in the end he has in mind your eternal blessing, your eternal happiness, but even more so he has in mind his own eternal blessing and his own 
eternal happiness. The overruling will of God is an expression of his sovereignty. So you have a lovely scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. You may have wondered about this scripture. Now with the sovereignty of God, you understand it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13... And verse 8, look at this. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. That is an expression of the overruling will of God. Now, I'm not saying by this that therefore you should have license. Oh, well, great, we'll do as we please. That's not the point. God, if he wants, if God wants to bless you fully, the only way you can be blessed is to be in the hollow of his hand, to be absolutely in his perfectly expressed will. That's what you must do. If you want a really miserable Christian life, you do as you please, right? And you're welcome to it, right? As for me and my house, we're not touching it, thanks very much, with a barge pole. Nevertheless, God will work all that even to his overruling plan, and it will come right. Now, I can give you an example after example. How many of you read this incident that occurred in Stockholm a few years ago, where a man was baptizing two baptismal candidates in the water. And do you remember, they left the element in, and it was still on. And do you remember, as they were about to baptize, there was a short circuit, and the pastor and his two baptismal candidates were electrocuted in the water. Now that's a pretty big blow, isn't it, for a church? When I was in Stockholm earlier this year, a girl came up to me and she was talking. I said, which church are you from? And she named the church. And she said, do you know our church? And I said, no. She said, well, a few years ago, our pastor was electrocuted with two... And I said, I read that, you know, in, in the British newspaper. And I said, what a blow. She said, oh. She said, you know, there's been revival ever since it's happened. The whole church was in massive revival because of this thing. Now, the devil thought, how am I going to destroy this church? Right, this is how I'm going to do it. It's ended up in wonderful... I mean, hundreds have been saved in that particular place, you see. The devil moves, yet God overrules. And you get the overruling will of God. Moscow persecutes the Christians. The church thrives. Amazing, isn't it? We had some Icelandic people in the fellowship a few weeks ago, and they come from the town which was overrun by the volcano. Do you remember there was a volcano that erupted in the southern part of Iceland? Do you remember that? And it inundated most of their town. They said just a few months after that occurred, there was revival in their town. Hundreds got saved in that particular town. Amazing, isn't it, what God can actually turn to his own use. Do you see? This is the overruling will of God. And it's true because God is sovereign. So we have a verse, don't turn to it, in Romans eleven thirty six, which says, For of him and through him and to him are all things. That's sovereignty. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Now, there is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. He will have his way. And those of us who are mature will bow the knee and say, Lord, have your way in my life. I may not understand it, but I say amen. We can put up with anything, you know, if we know that in the end it works, this eternal weight of glory. If God is benefited and his work is benefited, then so be it, O God. But be Lord and be King.
All right, just to end then, all I want to show is that Father is sovereign, Son is sovereign, and the Holy Spirit is sovereign. So that's three scriptures. Let's just go. First of all, Father being sovereign, Ephesians 1, verse 5 and verse 11. Ephesians 1, verse 5. God will do as he pleases. Verse 5. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. That's the Father. He will do as he please. Verse 11, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. He discusses it with himself, and then he does it. That's our God, sovereign of all the universe. Now there's Father. Jesus also does as he wills, which is sovereignty. We find that in John chapter 5. In all the attributes, by the way, I'll be showing how it applies to the three members of the Godhead. In verse 21, John 5, 21, For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. And the Son decides. He doesn't, he's not in reference to anyone else. He decides and he does it. And last of all, the Holy Spirit has will. Yes, he does. He's sovereign too. We find that in the last passage for tonight in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talking about the gifts of the Spirit. Verse 11 talking about these gifts and it says in verse 11 but all these worketh that one and the selfsame Spirit dividing to every man severally as he will. And so we see here the Trinity coming through again. Father sovereign, Son sovereign, Holy Spirit sovereign. We are his creatures, created for his good pleasure. O oh Lord, come and be Lord in our lives. That should be the prayer on every one of our lips. Next time I'm going to be looking at what is perhaps the most important of the attributes of God, and that is the attribute of holiness. Let's just pray before we begin, before we end. I beg your pardon. Father, I do thank you, Lord, for these truths that are so hidden in your, in your word. Father, we do long, Lord, in our own fellowship for the true maturity of God to come upon us. That, Father, we should be those who will indeed rejoice in our God, but who will also bow the knee when he decides that he will be Lord in our lives. Father, I pray we might take you very seriously in this. Father, that you might do all things for your good pleasure in us. And Father, our prayer is that our will might be your will. Father, will you come and move in our hearts until we can say that we are perfectly your own? Oh, Father, please find in us trustworthy stewards obedient servants. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.